Now take your Bibles, if you would, turn them to Romans, not Romans. <laughs> I need an extra hour of sleep too. Ruth, Ruth chapter four uh, this morning. One of the things that always makes me so nervous is the process that you have to go through when you're, you're doing something, maybe like online, where you're subscribing or you're signing up for something online, maybe issuing a payment or something like that. You go through the process, you enter your name information, put in your credit card number, uh, and then you click next. And it brings you to this page sometimes that, um, like a disclosure page that goes through terms and conditions. And this is the page that always makes me nervous because they have the terms and conditions all in a little box that you can scroll through if you're interested in reading it all. And as you scroll through, I mean, it's probably like, you know, 40 pages long, like all these little fine, uh, fine print things that you, it really bores us. And so most of us and myself, I'm just tempted to go down to the bottom and just click accept. And sometimes they're even convenient where they put accept at the top of the page so you don't have to scroll the bottom of the page. But it always makes me nervous. What did I just sign? What did I, I mean, what did I put on the line? It's sort of like when you go, when you're closing on a house or, or finishing the purchase of a car, you sit down and they've given you like 20 minutes to do this. We're gonna get this closure done really quick and then they give you, you know, a stack of papers this thick to sign and they go through it as quickly as possible and it's even got it marked, you know, uh, with a post-it note, sign here, sign here, sign here, initial year, initial year, initial year. This is what this is. But then you read all these letters. Do I need to read this? Like, what am I signing here? Did I just give away my firstborn child? You know, am, am I, am I going to end up going to jail for something? It always makes me so nervous. And it reminds me of a statement that we, we sometimes use um, called, the devil is in the details. There have been sometimes on a few things where I've, I've been upset with my service or something that I've subscribed to. And so I make a phone call or, or, or get online and chat with somebody and it comes down to, sir, did you not read the disclosure? You agreed to the terms and conditions. We cannot refund your money. Sorry, you agreed to this happening and so forth. I said, I didn't even read it. We signed it. It's too bad. The devil is in the details. Typically, when we use the statement, the devil is in the details, we're talking about the, the, the reality that sometimes we can have big plans and big dreams about things and, and set out to do something. But, in, but if we don't pay attention to the details, it's sometimes in the small things, the little things, that, that things can fall apart. It's not that the plan's bad. It's not that the dream's bad. It's not that where we're going is bad. It's that sometimes if we don't pay attention to the details and, and care about the small things as we're getting from one place to the other, it could fall apart. You know, the truth is there is a reality to that, not just in life. There is a reality to that in your spiritual life, too. You know, God has a plan for your life and God has a purpose for your life and he wants to accomplish things through your life. And, and Satan can't mess that up. So oftentimes he spends a lot of his work and a lot of his effort in the day-to-day -day details of our lives. Because if he can pick us apart on a Monday, then he can keep us from experiencing what God has for us on a Friday. He can derail our lives with the small decisions and the temptations that we face along the way. It is true in a lot of ways that the devil is in the details. But one of the things that I think we learned from the story of Ruth is that our God is a God of details. 
This is an incredible story of God taking two widows out of poverty and destitute and giving them a future and giving them a plan. But throughout this story that we've looked at over the past several weeks together, we have seen God working in the small details, in the shadows, behind the scenes, below the surface, God's providential hand leading Naomi and Ruth, leading Ruth to Boaz, leading God's provision for this family because God wants to accomplish. He is a God of the details. And I want you to understand that's the same in your life, that God is working through the small things, the everyday things, the almost unnoticeable things that you don't even recognize and realize God is working in those areas just as much as he's working in the big stuff and the grand things. And so this morning, as we come to the end of the story, close to the end of the story, we've got one more week together. We're gonna look at a detailed thing. We're gonna look at some terms and conditions that take place. What happens at the end of chapter four is, is Ruth and Boaz get married. And the marriage ceremony is actually a contract. It's a, it's, a, it's a legal matter, and it's a business deal that takes place. And so I want you to turn, if you would, to the terms and conditions in chapter 4, the fine print, the little writing in chapter 4, begin reading in verse 7, as we see God put this couple together and a new family is made. Stand in honor of God's word, if you would, Ruth chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought him from the, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Shilon and Malon, so that Ruth also, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. And the people who were there at the gate and, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You can be seated. God is a God of the details. The details matter to him. And while we can look at this and see that this is a transaction that takes place, and it tells us exactly that's what it is in verse 7. There is a, an exchange taking place. Boaz is buying land, and with that land, he is buying, as it says here, a wife. And so in a very unromantic way, what we have described here is the beginning of a new family, of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. The relationship begins. But there's several details, several terms that I want you to notice in this relationship as it begins. Because in a lot of ways, I think the relationship between Boaz, who is known as the Redeemer, and Ruth, 
depicts and paints for us a picture that God wants us to see about our relationship with our Redeemer. Because in our relationship with our Redeemer, there are certain terms and conditions. There are some important details that you and I need to understand. And so in this transaction, in this brief passage, we see several really important details that have to do with their relationship and specifically that have to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the first thing I want you to notice in this is that all of this began with a personal commitment. What is technically taking place here in this is the execution of that commitment, the following through of that commitment. But back in chapter three, Boaz made a commitment in private to Ruth. You remember the story of the threshing floor, how Ruth came up there one night as they were winnowing on the threshing floor. And after Boaz had gone to sleep, Ruth approached him uncovered his feet and waited for her. And then the whole conversation about her being redeemed by him. And basically she's saying, will you marry me? Boaz makes the promise in verse 13. He says, remain here tonight. And in the morning, if he redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He made a commitment there with his word that he would redeem Ruth. He followed through with that commitment in chapter 4 in verse 1, where the very next morning he gets up, he goes to the city gate where business deals were done, where transactions and legal matters took place. And he sat there by the gate. And as he was waiting there by the gate, he was waiting for one man, and that was the closest redeemer, to have a conversation. Last week we looked at that conversation, and basically what he said is, listen, there's land. Our relative, whom you're nearest to, Naomi, has land. You need to buy it. You're the nearest kinsman redeemer. The guy says, great, I'll buy it. And then Boaz says, well, just remember, when you buy it, you're also buying Ruth, the wife of the deceased, and she'll become your wife. And he says, I'm out. You can buy it. And in verse 7, he does. He makes a personal commitment. And the commitment is expressed and shown and, and actually signed off in this odd manner that took place, it tells us, in Israel, concerning things like this, redeeming and exchanging of properties where, where a shoe was handed. Here's, here's the contract. Here's the signing on the dotted line. Here's the closing papers that they went through. Here's the accept the terms of agreement. Uh, this man took his sandal off and he handed it to Boaz and Boaz took that sandal from him. Now, when we look in the Old Testament law, in particular, when it came to the, the law of the Leverite, the kinsman redeemer, in that law, there was the practice described, take your shoe off, hand it to the other person, but there was also another step, spit in the man's face. Boaz, by, his, by grace, probably so excited that he's getting to marry Ruth, doesn't spit in the man's face. He lets him go off with his dignity, but he does purchase the land. He follows through with the commitment. He makes a commitment and it's exchanged through the giving of this sandal. And I don't know where the idea of a sandal came from. Some believe that maybe it came from what God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, that everywhere that the tread of your sandal steps, this land I will give you. And so maybe there was a picture with, this, with the foot, meaning that God had given this land and this was an exchange of land. And so transferring that foot to one to another might have been the reason. Nonetheless, a commitment is made. And really when you think about it, 
That's what marriage is. It's a commitment. It begins with love, and love drives us to the commitment, but it's more than just a feeling, and it's more than just two people loving one another. It's two people committing to love one another. And we, we, we say that in the vows. I take you to be my husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish from this day forward, to death do us part. A commitment is made, a vow is made that I am going to love you. This statement is true, okay? I married my wife because I love her. It was our love for each other that brought us to make the commitment to marry. But this statement is also true. I love my wife because I'm married to her. That's a really easy thing for me to do, by the way. She's an incredible woman, kind and sweet. But for her, that commitment is tested all the time. Because sometimes I do things that would make one not feel as if they love me. And though she's never said it, I know she doesn't feel it. I know she doesn't, she, she wouldn't verbalize this, but, but sometimes with the tone that she responds to my foolish behavior and stupid things I do sometimes, sometimes the look on her face and man, there's so much sometimes said in, <sighs> I'm so grateful that she's made a commitment to love me. It's a commitment. We see that commitment played out, that Boaz begins this whole thing by making a commitment to Ruth. And I want you to understand something. Your Redeemer made a commitment to you. Christ makes a commitment to us. We see this commitment really pressed upon him in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, when he says, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass for me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, yours be done. I'm making the commitment. He committed to his Father's will. And his Father's will was to, to draw him to do what it took to show and express the fullest love that we could ever experience in his sacrifice. He stuck to that commitment. That commitment is strong, his commitment to love you. In fact, Paul speaks of the depth of that commitment in Romans chapter 8, when he says this in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He committed to love us. And he commits us to see us through. Philippians chapter 1 verse 8, I am convinced that he, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it, bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He makes that commitment. He's all in on that commitment and nothing can shake it. No matter how foolish we are, no matter how dumb we are, no matter how sinful we are, no matter how unlovable we are, he is committed to love us, 
into a relationship with us. And he's all in on it by giving his life in death for it. And the proper response to a commitment like that is a personal commitment from us. That's a detail that you and I need to understand about a relationship with God begins with a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. He made a personal commitment to you and he calls us to make a personal commitment to him. Commitment is not just a feeling, it's not just a service, it's not just an emotion, it's not just a thought, and it's also not just a belief. It's a commitment to follow him. Christ gave his life and he asks for ours to surrender our lives to him. That's a detail about knowing God that you need to understand. You want a relationship with God, you have to make a personal commitment through Jesus Christ. It's not just something you take on, it's not just something you inherit, it's not just something all of a sudden you become, it's a commitment you make. There's a deciding moment and it affects everything in your life. It is a big deal. Have you made that commitment? You cannot be saved without a commitment to Christ. That's called faith. That's what faith is, putting your trust, turning your life over to him. That's the small print. That's the details. Personal commitment. But a personal commitment, Boaz shows us, always results in a public profession. So Boaz made this personal commitment, but it wasn't something that he kept to himself. This personal commitment was made public. It was made at a gate with witnesses. In verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and the people, you are witnesses. I want you all to understand what is happening here. I am purchasing this land from Naomi, and with that, I am purchasing Ruth as my wife. I want you to see this. I want you to understand the personal commitment I am making. I am making this personal commitment a public thing. And in return, we, we read in verse 11, it says that then there all the people who were there at the gate said, okay, we witness it. We see that you have, we agree. You've done that. You've made that commitment. This was not some sort of private meeting held in a judge's chambers. This marriage was not some sort of quick trip to Vegas to elope. There were people present because this was an important moment. He was taking something private and personal and making it public. You know, we, we practice marriage that way. There's a personal commitment made between two people. Will you? And yes, I do. But then we celebrate that publicly 
through a wedding ceremony. And boy, we do that big today. I mean, we rent out, we have whole venues made for things like this. We put on certain clothing. We say certain words. We eat cake and punch and have receptions and dance and do all sorts of things. We walk a person down the aisle. We invite our guests. We invite all these people to celebrate and witness a personal commitment made public. The reason this is important and the reason why this is a big deal because at this day, in this moment, in this odd transaction that takes place here, not at a chapel or in a church or in some wedding venue, but at this gate of a city with a bunch of elders and other people around, is something special. A new family unit began. A marriage was started and a new family began. You know, so much of our Christian life, so much of our relationship with God is to be a public declaration. This personal commitment that we have with Jesus is not something that is to be private. It's something that's to be made public. And there's a lot of things that we have, biblical things that Jesus set up for us to have in order to make this personal commitment a public profession, an outward expression of an inward reality in our lives. And so we, we have baptism, which is a public profession of your faith. It's standing up in front of the world saying, I've, I'm with Jesus, I've trusted him. He's made a commitment to me and I've made a commitment to him. We're told in the New Testament that we're to confess our sins one to another. We're to make those things public as we repent and continue to follow Jesus. We're told through the New Testament that we're supposed to speak out and give a testimony of God's work in our life. We're not to keep that quiet, what God's doing in our life. There's to be a public profession of his work in our life, a public profession of our sin to each other, and a public profession of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the details, the personal gone public. What does a public profession do? I mean, what, what, is, what is Boaz doing here that's, that makes this so significant? And why is it important that we make a public declaration, a public profession of our relationship? Well, one, it validates the commitment. Because if you won't make a commitment in public, then it's likely that you've never really made the commitment in private. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. A public profession validates the personal commitment. It's a step of action with that personal commitment. It also symbolizes the commitment. The exchange of the shoe or the sandal here in this story symbolized the transaction that took place, that he's purchasing, that he's taking upon this family as his family. We do that in weddings. We have an exchange of rings and we have a kissing of the bride and we have a declaration that this is a new family. I now introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. whoever. And in our faith, in our following and relationship with Jesus, we have a symbolic way of professing 
believer's baptism, which symbolizes what Christ has done for us, that the old is gone, the new has come, that we've been buried in Christ's death and raised to life, that the old has been washed and the new has come. That's what it symbolizes. And that's why it's important for us to make that part because we can't see on the inside what's happened. This is a way of recognizing and showing the world what's happened by this outward expression. And it's a testimony of the commitment. It's a way of telling the world and showing the world what commitment has been made. A testimony of what Christ has done in you through this public profession. When it means something, when a person says, God changed my life, Jesus has saved me, it means something when a person stands in the baptistry and walks through that symbol, that public profession. It's a symbol and a sign. It's a testimony of a changed life. I remember when I was a little kid, we, we went to a church. My dad was on staff there at this church, and it was a, it was a big church, and uh, the pastor was just a great guy, Dr. Lady Johnson, and he was an, an elderly gentleman, and he, he had this, he was a great preacher, but one of the things I'll never forget about Dr. Johnson is that he, he, would, he would remember everyone's name. He would meet you once, and, and he would remember everyone's name. And, and he had a big church. I mean, about 2,000 people came to this church every weekend. So there's a lot of names to remember. I, I was not gifted with that gift. You're well aware of that. One of the things I, I, I'll never forget about Dr. Johnson was, was the baptisms that he did. He made a big deal about baptisms, and we did it really, really regularly. Nearly every week um, at this church, there was someone being baptized, and and, uh, and Dr. Johnson, I'll never forget because my dad made a big deal about this because my dad was a pastor of his own church before that and then came on staff here at this church. And so he was told, he already had a way of doing things, but he was told how he was gonna do things. And I remember him making fun of over dinner one night uh, what Dr. Johnson's method of baptizing, some things he told his staff that they had to say when they baptized. Um, but, but watching it played out, it was always meaningful. I'll never, ever forget it. He would baptize people and, and, and he, he used King James Version, okay? So he spoke in the these and the vows and, and so forth. And in quoting that passage of scripture in Acts chapter eight, I think it is where, where the person tells Peter and said, hey, here, here is much water. What hinders me from being baptized? Well, in the King James Version, it says, here is much water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And so every time that we would baptize, that Dr. Johnson would baptize, he would take his hand and he would scoop it in the water and he would say, here is much water. What doth hinder you from being baptized? And even as a little boy, I knew the significance of that moment was this. These people's public act was a testimony of Christ's work and an invitation for others to join. Amen. And your public profession is so important. Some of you need to make a personal commitment to Christ. You need to begin that relationship with Jesus Christ. But others of you that have begun that relationship with Christ, you've trusted Christ and given your life to him. Have you made that public profession? What are you waiting for? Why are you being so silent with it? Why aren't you willing to profess to this world, to this church and to other people, what Christ has done inside of you? You need to move forward in this relationship. You need to take that next step. It's in the details. 
It's, it's an important part of this relationship to make that public profession of faith. And for some of you, why are you so quiet about it at work and in your neighborhood and in your family? Do people know of your personal commitment to Christ? Or is that just a private matter for you? Have you publicly shown it in your words, in your testimony, in your life? When people ask you, what'd you do this weekend? Do you tell them, oh, we just relaxed, enjoyed the pretty weather this weekend, did some housework, watched a great basketball game last night, and leave off while I worshiped Jesus with some, some pretty okay people. Public profession, it's one of the details of this relationship. The last thing I want you to see in this is personal commitment, public profession, and then private union. So this is a really bizarre, abnormal thing. Most of you probably that are married probably didn't get married this, this, this way. And if you did, well, I'm sorry. But in verse 13, it gets a little bit more familiar and steamy. And we go from this wonderful G-rated story to maybe more of a PG, PG-13. And so we read this in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. I want you to notice the progress of this relationship. It began with a personal commitment which became a public profession which then becomes a private union, a private intimacy. Now this is where the details are, are left off and I think we're all grateful for that because now this relationship that has been a personal commitment that has been made public moves to a private one. That's how God, through Jesus, works with us. A personal commitment, a public profession, and then a private union. The day-to-day -day life with Jesus. We don't know what went on behind closed doors, not just that day, but the many days after this. We, we don't know any of those kind of things. What did they fight about? Did he snore? Was she a good cook? Where did they take vacations? When did he retire? All those kind of things. That's the matter between Ruth and Boaz. And that's the beauty of our relationship with Jesus is that, is that he takes it deeper. That he takes it between the closed door of your closet and your, your bedroom or your 
your time at a coffee shop, of a personal relationship where you talk with him and he talks with you and he helps you with life and he encourages you and he changes you and he molds you and he makes you and he strengthens you and he corrects you. And where you, you can pour out your heart to him. You can throw your complaints and your requests and your needs and your wants before him. Where you can confess the, the darkest, deepest, ugliest things of who you are to him. And the privacy of that relationship with him. You know, maybe this doesn't make sense to us is because we, we've gotten so far off kilter for the way that God intended it. Because this is, this is a picture-perfect way of doing it. There was a personal commitment, there was a public profession, and then there was a private union, which is the way that God ordained marriage to be. And yet our culture and society completely reverses that. We want the private intimate union before we get to the personal commitment and the public profession. And that is not God's way. And that is wrong and that is sinful. And if you want God to bless, then you need to do it his way. And to be honest with you, I'm really glad that God gave us an example of a man and a woman that did. Because this man and woman who began with a personal commitment to a public profession, to a private union, began a bloodline or continued a bloodline. Led to a really famous person named King David just a couple generations later. I want to tell you something. If it weren't for these two people, on May 23rd, 1987, I would not have been able to make a personal commitment to the Redeemer that came from their bloodline. And on July 27th of the same year, I would not have been able to make a public profession of faith in that Redeemer. And for the past 32 years, I wouldn't have this relationship daily. where he's worked on me and he's helped me, he's encouraged me and he's fixed me and he's disciplined me and he's loved me. How's your personal, private union with Christ? Are you cultivating and nurturing that relationship because let me tell you something, that's not something done publicly. That's not something that just happens at church on Sunday morning with a bunch of other people. That happens on Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon. It happens in the privacy of those moments, the closed doors that no one but you and Jesus see. That's where the personal relationship grows. 
And this personal relationship, this private union, the stronger it gets and the healthier it gets and the more that we move closer to Jesus Christ in those moments and we let him work on us and we spend the time reading his word and, 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 and break, taking our needs before him, the more that, it, that the public outside profession strengthens. You see, the private becomes public. You see, the personal commitment becomes public and then goes to private relationship, but then back at it. This private relationship is displayed more publicly and it strengthens the commitment. It's this incredible cycle that Jesus gives back and forth and back and forth as we work upon him and as we walk with him in private, it comes out more publicly to this world. So how's your relationship? How's your privacy? With Jesus. It's in the details. So where are you on the details today? There are some of you this morning that need to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You have not made that personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You're a Jesus fan. You're, you're, you're a church-going person. But the truth of the matter is you have never made a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Christ has made a personal commitment to you. And so why don't you make it back this morning? Why don't you invite Jesus to be your savior? Make the commitment to trust in him this morning. Others of you this morning, you've made that personal commitment. You've never gone public with it. You've never followed through with making it known through believer's baptism. And I want you to know if that's you, there is a stunt in your relationship with Jesus. You cannot move forward too far without going through step one. You're in, but you're not going anywhere. So make that public profession of faith. Make it known. And for the rest of us this morning, that personal relationship are you spending time? Are you pouring in? Or is it a conversation that you need to pick up? It's in the details. Our God is a God of details.